Welcome to the Relaxed Dog Podcast. The podcast where the dogs are the stars of the show. Welcome to episode 82 of the Relaxed Dog Podcast, sponsored by therelaxeddog.com. Thank you very much for finding this show. I am your host, Robert Ober, and I hope that you and your dog are well. My guest this week is Kieran Walsh, and he's going to be telling us about Marilyn, as well as a very important book concept for people with children wanting a puppy. So if you do listen through to the end of the episode you should get some great information. If you haven't already done so, hit that subscribe button and that would be greatly appreciated. In some doggy news, we go to the US and researchers in Missouri have found that during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they did a study and they found dog owners were less depressed during the pandemic than non-dog owners. Surprise, surprise. Now we go to the UK and a young lady who suffers from non-epileptic seizures has a service dog. Um, His name is Flump, and Flump is a... Our two-year-old Maltese. Now, this lady got pregnant and was going to hospital to give birth. What do you do when you have that condition and have a dog? You take it with you, of course. So Flump went into the hospital. Uh, They took him in a couple of times so he knew what uh, was going on and around the theatre and happy to say that all went well with the birth and Flump is bonding well with the baby. Um, Just for those people that are interested, yes, service dogs are allowed in hospitals. In the UK and in many other countries around the world, as they should be. And here's this week's interview. Welcome to the Relaxed Dog Podcast. I am here with Kieran Walsh. How are you? All good, Robert. All good. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Oh, an absolute pleasure. So, um, whereabouts in the world are you? I am in a little island called Ireland, <laughs> which is which, which is a temperature probably just about a quarter of what you have there, which is about twelve degrees at the moment, or dropping a bit more tonight. But refreshing. Yeah. Uh, fresh, fresh, certainly. I wouldn't, I'm not sure about refreshing. <laughs> um, who is going to be the subject of our conversation today? Our conversation will center around a dog that has sadly passed away a few years ago called Marilyn. And Marilyn was a St. Bernard that I met in a rescue shelter in Ireland. Wonderful. I'm going to, as per usual, ask to ask you to take us back in time to just before you met and tell us about the, the hows and whys that that happened. Right. Well, 
I would say this is um, a series of events or chain of events in the last few years that I suppose if we go back to January or February of 2015, I could never have imagined. Because mm-hmm. at, at the time I was sort of happy in the financial world and I knew exactly how the world worked or so I thought and absolutely fine. Now, I would say up to that point, all of my family and friends kept sort of telling me that, you know, I have a certain gift when it comes to animals. And I could never understand that. And I thought everybody was like that anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's like if you say to an opera singer, you know, you have a great voice, they'll probably say, oh, so does everyone. <laughs> 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 so what's so special here? But anyway, um, I was out walking on the countryside one day south of Dublin. And I saw this little plaque on the side of a, an old building and curiosity got the better of me. And maybe it, it, it's sort of typical of anybody who works in the financial world, where, where's the small print? I want to have a look at that plaque. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really interested in, in, in the sort of sketching of the building. I just want to read the small print. And it turned out to be an old British police station. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that looks interesting. And at the same time, I heard this wall of noise, dogs barking, and I sort of wondered, my gosh, there's a busy farmer. So I thought nothing about that for a few days. And then I was in the local post office um, for the first time. I'd moved, I, was, I moved out of Dublin, just south of Dublin at this time. So it was my first visit to the post office, and there was a poster on the wall next to the counter where you get the stamps. And I just noticed the address and what that looks like, the old police station. And they were looking for volunteers. I think that's a good coincidence. Might as well get to know some of the neighbors. So I rang them up and said, I've just moved around the corner. Do you need any help to walk dogs? And they invited me in. So uh, first time in there, um, I got lost finding the place again, the, the sat-nav technology. It works on some roads, but not, not in the Dublin mountains or the Wicklow mountains. So finally got there with about 20 minutes before closing time. And the first dog they gave me was a little terrier called Rosie. And they said, now be careful with Rosie. She's afraid of cars. And so they gave me the dog and I thought, oh, you're afraid of cars. Well, I mean, this is the middle of nowhere. There'd be no problems here. So I brought her out around this sort of three-kilometer circular route from the rescue shelter down a road, across road, and back. And I thought, this is as boring as it could be. <laughs> Enough of this. <laughs> Enough of this. So um, I had Rosie on the lead, and um, 200 meters away from the shelter, and I hear a car coming, and Rosie goes ballistic. <laughs> so the first thing she does is go straight for the ditch, and there was about a 100-foot drop behind the ditch. Ooh. This is mountainous country. So I could see Rosie trying to claw her way back as far as she could from the noise of the car. And then when I was trying to hold her, I could see the lead sort of slipping over her head. And I thought, oh, I have a problem here. So I tried to get down to her without pulling the lead off her, or without pulling the collar off her head. And as my hands went through the briar bush, bush um, I could feel the, the thorns and everything ripping my arms apart, trying to pull this dog back to safety. So this was a strange sort of introduction to the thorns that were to come. <laughs> so retrieved Rosie and she was sort of, what's the word I would say, 
somewhere between anxious and ballistic. Um, I'm not sure what the word is between anxious and ballistic, but let's say difficult. difficult. And yes. <laughs> so I managed to get her back and I sort of pulled the, the sleeves back or what was left of my sleeves and the blood and everything and brought her back and said, well, yeah, that was, that was adventurous. And they said, would you like to walk another dog? Because we have one dog that did, wasn't walked in the last few days. So I said, well, as long as it's not small and something I can manage, there'd be no problem. So they said, oh, yeah, we have just what you're looking for, but this dog will be a little bit difficult to handle. It's very strong. So I said, oh, yeah, no problem. What's the breed? And they said, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you'll see it now. So they brought out a Rottweiler. And the Rottweiler was was pulling the member of staff from one side of the, the yard to the other. And I looked at the manager and he looked at me and I said, oh, it's okay, no problem. So... This Rottweiler called Toby stopped at my feet and I just put my hands on him and he came down, sat down and I said, hello, Toby. And then we just walked. Now, this tends to happen when I'm with animals, usually dogs and horses, that they just go quiet. Nice. Right. Now, I have discovered why it happens, which is, which is nice, but... We walked out, and then when I came back, the manager asked if I was a dog trainer. And I certainly knew there and then, ah, I see where all this is going. I couldn't understand it. but I, so, so to cut the long story short, within a couple of weeks, um, the manager made some phone calls, and I was studying in a professional school for dog trainers, um, just part-time. So even, a couple of evenings at the week and weekends. And within about two and a half years, I qualified as a professional dog trainer. So part of that route was the star of your show tonight, which was the St. Bernard called Merlin, turned up in the rescue shelter about a month or two months later. And Merlin had a very dark history. She was about four years old at this stage. And I have been told she was in a couple of... um, other shelters that couldn't handle her. And this shelter had a no-kill policy. So her difficulty was if it moved, she would attack it. Oh, just, right. just she a was small problem? <laughs> small problem. And she was basically, if you like, psychologically damaged. Mm. So first, first day I met Marilyn, we seemed to get on absolutely perfect within seconds. And as often is the case, um, I, I would say I'm, one of the things I'm very guilty of is I, I can't actually see the viciousness in a lot of dogs mm-hmm. <laughs> until usually it's a bit late in the day. <laughs> but um, so first day I just got into the cage with Marilyn and absolutely no problem. And we sort of had this, I would say, a natural connection. So one of the things I noticed with Merlin is all of her hair was very badly matted. Now, if anybody has worked with the St. Bernard, um, it's a very tough job because if you groom them and cut them, it's hard to explain it. It's like one carpet coming off them after the next, after the next. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no end of hair. So I spent, um, I suppose, the first few weeks trying to get the, the brush and the scissors and the manager says, you know, that's, that's probably a suicide mission if you, if you touch her at all. And strangely enough, that was, that was never an issue. It was just like, um, just let's go for it and we do as much as we can. 
Um, and it's very tough work to groom a St. Bernard. It just takes hour after hour after hour. And it's hard to explain wh- where all the hair is, but it, I suppose it's their, their nature, you know, that they have compact hair and it's basically what protects them from freezing conditions. Mm-hmm. However, if you're trying to groom them, you'll discover why this is so useful in nature or how nature works. So now one of this is, this is the strange part and the, if you like, the surreal moment, or one of the many surreal moments in the story with Marilyn, which was I could groom her for, say, 20 minutes and she'd get a bit tired and then she'd let me say, she'd let me know she's fed up. So as many of your guests would say, dogs have a way of communicating. They'll grunt or they'll bark or they'll make a certain movement and if you don't understand it, they'll make exactly the same movement again. So um, we had we had an, an incredibly simple telepathic connection. So wh- whenever Merlin wanted, it was, it was like I could feel it in my stomach and then suddenly it's in my head. So she was happy enough with, say, 10, 15 minutes grooming and cutting in the cage. And that was it. And then we'd go out and there was a particular place on the route where she was happy to stop and stay for another 20 or 30 minutes. And again, I get this, I bring the scissors and the grooming brush and chop. And what's important is like some of her hair was so matted that she, nobody had um, groomed it or cut it in the years before because I think they took the manager's advice. That would have been a suicide mission that mm. I was probably the first person she did. She never attacked. Um, so I would... We got this spot, which is sort of on the on the road around this circular route, but it was a little bit in off the road, trees and everything. So even if it rained, there's no problem. And she'd stay still and I'd cut away and chop, chop, chop. So as the weeks went on, and this is sort of normal in the Irish countryside, the foxes do their business. And sometimes wild cats do their business and they take a chicken here and a chicken there. And there's this rumor going around that there must have been a very dangerous wild cat because the remains of the chickens, in other words, the, the hair and whatever was turning up in this place. Mm. And I thought this was quite interesting. So there was a lot of the locals were sort of looking at the remains of Merlin's fleece. <laughs> and adding one to one and getting 20, saying, there's a very dangerous animal in the vicinity. Yes. <laughs> Mystery animal. <laughs> Mystery animal. So that was, that, was, that was one of the odd memories. But um, the, the other thing with Merlin is that um, whenever I was walking her, she, I had to sort of wear a special belt with a second... Um, a second lead, and then she had the, you know, the, the normal um, harnesses that have the ring on the front to disable the dog from 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 attacking or charging. Mm-hmm. So, what, what I suppose if anybody's unfamiliar with that, the the lease or the the harness is the normal sort of body harness that most dogs would would have instead of just the the lead coming from the collar. But with this, you would have the lead attached to the back of the harness and to the front. And the idea is that if you pull on the front, the dog's legs are squeezed together. Squeezed together, yeah. So it hobbles in and then, from, from charging and, yeah. and redirects and the then the, yep. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so a safety measure. And then I had to wear a second, uh, wear a belt and a second lead to make sure if anything went wrong, we had, we had as much control as possible. And the reason for that is if there was um, another dog or 
a walker or a hiker coming in the opposite direction. I quite simply had to find a way to keep a distance or take Merlin off the road. Um, and quite simply, if there was any mishap, the, the danger was way too high. And I would say beyond that, there were, this is the problem with no-kill shelters. You get a lot of dogs and they will spend most of their life in a cage. Sadly. So, yeah, unfortunately. So I, I looked after, with Merlin, there was 11 other dogs which were aptly called the usual suspects. Mm. So, <laughs> and they all had the same route. Um, psychologically damaged, quite dangerous. And because the shelter had a no-kill policy, they were kept alive. But... Um, it was very hard to find anybody experienced enough to handle a dog, take the risk of bringing them out, and the risk and the risk was very high. So um, that was that was the first adventure with Merlin. And then when I was studying to be the um, to be a professional dog trainer, I had to sort of do a lot of exercises with her. So she was, and these were recorded, and you'd submit the video, and. She was just the perfect candidate to do exercise after exercise that um, for some reason, any time I took her out, we just had this natural flow. Oh, it's beautiful. And, and um, so as, as the years went by, um, I would say her behavior with me was almost perfect. But we could never get over getting that to any higher level, which was, which was one of the regrets I'll always have. That, um, and I suppose this is this is where you know when you when the question was what my dog ate my, <laughs> I would say my 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 financial career because um, during this time when I looked at the rescue shelter and I looked at um, the the whole we'll say domestic dog situation and then how many dogs there are in the world and how does this work everywhere? What, what is the role of the dog in the world, in, in our houses? And, you know, the strange thing is when, when you look at it globally, you see that there are 900 million dogs on planet Earth. 700 million live in houses, 200 million live on the street, street dogs. And in some countries, it's like 100% are domestic dogs. That would be your typical Switzerland. Most European countries... Go to Asia, South America, it can be 30% live in houses, 70% live on the street. So it's what's sort of odd is dogs are very often a reflection of the economy, the political situation, um, right down to the, the microscope. And the thing that Merlin sort of taught me was how can this be changed? Or how, how can her situation be changed? Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, as I said, Berlin died way too early. She died um, about two years, three years after I met her. But um, mm. it, was, it was a case of, uh, you know, when you have a, a, as a, a dog or a human or anybody who isn't living according to the way they were designed by nature, well, then time runs against them. In other words, their lifespan is going to be impacted. So if you like, nat nature will allow anything to live to its full potential. But it will also be, if you like, time, you know, there's a famous quote from Gorbachev many years ago. He says, time punishes those who come too late. And I think in the same way, 
nature will punish anybody and everything that doesn't live according to its rules or according to its design. So when I looked at, you know, how, how dogs live in rescue shelters, um, you know, here you have natural creations going back thousands of years. And in Merlin's case, she would have been happy with, say, running around the mountains 25 miles, 50 miles a day without even thinking about it. And yet, almost every day she was confined to a tiny cage. So, well, nature is going to say, well, what's the point of this? So let's, let's close the shop early. So, um, you know, when you have animals like that and the diet isn't within, you know, rescue shelters and volunteers, they do what they can within the system. Yeah, what they can so, with, with what they can get. With, what, the, with, the, with what they can get. And one, so basically, I remember the last day with um, Marilyn, we were... We were we were out walking. I think before I get to the last day, you know, I, I canvassed nearly every dog handler who worked with St. Bernard's in Ireland and the UK to see if there was any possibility of her getting out of the shelter. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. Oh. So and did her reactivity, I know it's hard to sort of to quantify, but if it was, if you were to give a, a percentage type thing from before when you just met her and after spending a couple of years with her, what sort of uh, what sort of uh, reduction in reactivity do you think she had, or with other other dogs and animals? Okay, that's a very good question. In, in terms of, I'll split that into two parts. I would say with myself and perhaps the manager of the shelter and one or two other volunteers, um, our relationships improved enormously. That at the beginning, everybody was afraid to even put food into her cage. Mm -hmm. And within that time span, when I worked with her, there was, there was no issues with the people she knew. Um, like to give you, to put this into a context, um, there was, there was one moment when I noticed one of her nails seemed to, to, to look as if it was ingrowing. And I got the, the veterinary nurse who visited the shelter and said, yeah, we have to, to start clipping her nails and do a sort of a minor um, operation. Well, not, not a surgical operation, but something you do with a clipper is no problem. And there was a 20-minute discussion with the manager on how dangerous this was and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And Merlin had a history. If, if she was slightly upset, she would go for somebody. And with a dog this size, if you were bitten, you know, the damage could be severe and it could be irreparable. So basically, I, I felt... Now, looking back on it, I thought I was actually foolish at the time. And I thought, no, we'll be able to handle this. There'll be no problem. And sure enough, I fed her continuously while she was lying, when I had her on the ground and the veterinary nurse was just clipping away and there was, there was no issue. So we'd say two years before I got involved with Merlin, that certainly would have been way too dangerous to even think about. Mm -hmm. um, now, against that, so to get over the bridge of could she have left the shelter, um, the answer was unfortunately, you no. Know, you would have to have, we discussed this quite a bit and the reactivity to anybody moving nev never abated. Unfortunately, we tried a lot of things, but 
Um, that's just the nature of it. You know, some, sometimes the very negative psychological impacts that people get, or even animals, you know, if, it, if there's, it's so hardwired, they, they just cannot get Absolutely. over it. That's, that's it. So, um, if, you know, looking back on it, I would say we did the best job we could, but um, given what happened to her, um, we will probably never know the full story. Nothing much could have been improved. Mm, no. And I, you know, what what I would say is that um, we even got um, one of the leading experts in St. Bernard's from the States. We just happened to be in Ireland for a while into look at her and we had the assessment and we got so far and we knew the, the game was up at that time. Mm-hmm. But um, that's... Did you ever... Was it... I know it's always extremely hard, um, but to get any other information on her backstory from when she was younger and uh, any possible scenarios or environmental factors? Um, We think it was a case of neglect and willful cruelty. Mm. That that, that somebody, somebody, now, this is the problem with rescue shelters and rescue dogs is that nobody will ever know the full story. And and I would say it's actually the best starting point. Now, what I mean by that is if you get a dog from a rescue shelter, you have to take it with a warning and don't be too surprised if it doesn't turn out the way you expect it. Because um, you might have a dog that's absolutely lovely, brilliant to be with, very well behaved. You bring it home. And it could be anything. It could be um, a child moving in the house that would trigger something. It could be the smell of something. It could be the presence of a cat next door. One never knows. But what I am basically saying is, if you get a rescue dog, please be as careful as you can because you're going into the unknown. Now, in most of most of the cases, things do work out. But it's something that hopefully every rescue shelter manager will bring up with you is, for God's sake, you, never, you will never, ever know the full story because the rescues certainly don't. And what often happens, and I've seen this time and time again, people will bring a dog and say, oh, we love the dog, but we're moving away and we can't bring the dog with us. And then when you sit them down for a cup of coffee and you talk about the weather and other things, something falls out. Yes, yep. <laughs> and you say, ah... So you're going away, but he has bitten two of your children. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, it's nice to know that. Yeah. Minor details. So, yeah, minor details. But in most cases, the reality is you never fully know. And then the other, the statistical fact is that 20% of all dogs that are in rescue shelters were previously in another rescue shelter or the same rescue shelter, or they've been returned to that rescue shelter. So I would say high risk, but to stick with Merlin for a moment, that, that um, after she passed away, um, I spent some time sort of thinking about how on earth did this story happen? Mm. And how could it be changed? And um, one of the things I did when I, after she passed, I went back to her cage and there was another dog in her cage who was, um, conveniently taken out for a walk when I arrived. So her cage was empty and I thought I would just sit in her cage and see what's the feeling. 
and see what what's the story here. And I was trying to sort of think, well, where's the message in all of this? And I was just sort of just sitting on the cement and sort of wondering, okay, what are the factors? So if you like, you're sitting on the cement, so that's, if you like, the history of domestic dogs. And then, you know, are they wild animals or are they domestic? So is everything as simple as hard cement? Then I sort of look, well, what, what, what else is keeping dogs in a cage? So the one side you would have, if you like, regulations, laws. Then the next wall of the cage would be the charitable institutions. Then a third wall might be the human way of thinking about it. You know, then the fourth wall would be the person who actually adopts the dog and their level of skill. And, and then you know, when you're sitting on this, you suddenly discover very quickly none of these parties or none of these influences actually communicate with each other, right? So when you look at the expectations, then you suddenly discover there's a bigger picture here, and not just a bigger picture, but, you know, when I said, you know, Marilyn was psychologically damaged, and I'm, I'm sort of thinking, this entire picture mm-hmm. as a culture, as a structure, is totally psychologically damaged. No argument with that. <laughs> Right. So, so let's look at these pieces, you know, one by one. You think, okay, you have a piece of cement and you're putting an animal in it. This is totally alien to the animal's way of thinking or being. That should be soil. It should be grass. It should be trees. So the first thing is you're subjecting a living creature to something totally unnatural and then expecting they would behave as we would like them, right? So straight away, the relationship is compromised both presently and through their expectation or any expectation. So you're, if anybody is adopting the dog, yeah, it looks great in the shelter and it looks lovely, but hold on, every day of that dog, the dog is spent in the cage, in the shelter, is, is one of compromise. So then we look at the regulations. In other words, the laws, the societies. And this is a, a very weird setup where, if you like, the government's duty is to keep its citizens safe. So in other words, to prevent dogs from attacking people on the street, which is fair enough. So there's two ways to look at the law. Is it, is it a question of dog protection or dog control? Or is it citizen protection? And when you look at the laws in many a country, now there are some exceptions to the rule, but, and I'd say Switzerland is the gold standard. And I will say this to everybody, and there's a very good reason. If we get a moment, I'll, I'll go through that in detail. But we have a situation where on the one side of the fence, you have the legal system and the other, I'd say the voluntary or the charity system. And they, they're sort of, they work like a tennis court where the ball goes from one end to the other and back again. A bit like um, your star that's visiting Australia at the moment. Um, 
Novak Djokovic, where he's going from the tennis court to the courts, back <laughs> yeah. to the tennis court, yes. back to the court, right? And people would say, isn't this a bit crazy? But Very when much. I look at the dog world, and you have, in the middle of it, you have it, the dog. So the politicians and our lawmakers, you know, now I'm not saying there's any fault here. Their duty is to protect everybody within the society. So you have a situation where the charitable networks and the SPCAs. So the, yes, the first SPCA was set up in London, 1824. So we're roughly almost two years away from the centenary, or the bicentenary. And in that time, the role has been to work with the government to mop up the problem, but not to prevent it. And the mopping up is, if you like, it's been passed over to volunteers, donations. So the idea is really, how do we keep the problem from rising to the point where it becomes a political problem? In 200 years, nobody is thinking, how do we actually prevent the problem from occurring in the first place? Mm. Now, so we, we go to the next wall of the fence, which is the person who might adopt the dog. And the crazy thing is, you the first question you would ask is, well, what's your skills level? If you're going to adopt a dog, you know, what guarantee can you give to the lawmakers, to the voluntary movement who are looking after mopping up the problem, to the rescue shelter managers, or even to the dog? And the answer is, well, we'll see how it goes. If it goes well, great. If it doesn't, look, I'll, I'll drop the dog back to you next week. And... If you look at the money involved, well, okay, I pay maybe two or three hundred dollars to the rescue shelter as a donation or whatever to keep the show on the road. But if it doesn't work out, well, that's okay. Well, you know, we, we've tried and that's it. And tough, we bring the dog back, as it as happens in one of five cases. So I was sort of looking at, at all of this in terms of how a bank would manage a project or how a bank would basically take the risk within financing something. So I wouldn't be, your, if you like, your normal dog trainer or dog lover. And when I say, I think this system is psychotic, I'll put it this way. <laughs> if somebody came in to me in the bank looking for a loan to provide some service like this, you know, they would be gone out the door before they could say boo. And I would, I would have no apologies to it. But I want to just focus everybody's mind on how things work in Switzerland for a moment. And then this, I think, Robert, everything will fall into place. Mm -hmm. So, right. So what you're going to discover is in Switzerland is they don't have any rescue shelters okay. because they don't need them. They don't need them. Mm -hmm. And then they don't have the fourth element, which is one I omitted a moment ago is where do all these dogs come from? And there's no secret here. The, most of the dogs come from, and the oversupply is caused by the puppy mill trade. Puppy mill, yep. The puppy mill. So the puppy mill is the fourth wall. Now, just to explain what a puppy mill is, it's a farm, it's a warehouse. And I would say it's one of the most evil places on the planet because if you're looking for cruelty, this is the gold standard. So in Switzerland, Anybody who wants a dog for the first time has to apply to 
the professional dog training school and say they want to do a theory course, four-hour theory course in how to look after a dog. And they get the very basics like, okay, what's your lifestyle? How much do you work? What's your age? What's your strength? So what are the breeds that you would actually be able to manage? Then what are the costs? What type of schedule do you have? What type of foods must the dog um, be given? Or, you know, other requirements, insurance, grooming, you name it. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple four-hour course. Now, what happens in a lot of cases is people would say, oh, that did sound like a good idea a few weeks ago. Yeah, not quite up to the commitment. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I didn't. Now, so once they get this certificate and they'll pay about, I think it's, um, we'll say in American dollars, it'll be about $100, $200 for the pleasure. And... Um, So their next port of call is the insurance company. Now, they will have identified the dog they're going to take over. Otherwise, it wouldn't be allowed to even start the process. Now, the insurance company will require them to have veterinary insurance for the dog and health insurance. Or sorry, indemnity insurance. So veterinary insurance and indemnity insurance in case the dog does what my old friend Rosie did, which was go through the bushes and cause an accident. (laughs) And... The insurance company are prohibited from selling that insurance unless they can see the certificate from the dog training school. Mm-hmm. So you can see there's suddenly an alliance between the chains in the system. So then when you have those three pieces of paper, you go down to the town hall and you can get a dog license. Now, the dog license is about €1,250, which I'll put it this way, it's the price of a good second-hand car. Mm. Right. So now, if you weren't convinced from the first three trips, you get to know what the costs are all about very quickly. And then you have 30 days to get yourself and the dog through the veterinary process of vaccinations and microchippings, if that's not already done. And you turn up at the dog training school with everybody else or a few others who have been certified in the past month or two months. And you're asked to walk and see how the dogs behave with other dogs and with other people. And if the professional trainers think, oh, there's a problem here, or you're not strong enough, or we need to moderate this behavior, they can recommend you come back for a few extra lessons or they can void the license. Mm. Right. So now, where you have, and this this is where I... With, where Merlin has turned my way of thinking is that in Switzerland, 100% of the onus, in other words, the responsibility, is on the dog owner. In most other countries, it's on the state. And when the state has to mop up the problem, well, then do not be surprised that you get the puppy mills making fortunes, that you get bites or very close to bites and you get a lot of children ending up in hospitals every year. You get the odd fatality. And, you know, all of your listeners who don't have dogs might say, well, so what? You know, that's, well, that's tough luck. But I think that the so what here is a very simple one, which is when you have a system that requires the mopping up effort, it has to be paid for. And it's paid through the taxation system. And you get in, in a lot of European countries, the 
rescue shelters, either state or private, they will get about 20% of their, or sorry, the state services are usually 100% uh, sponsored by the government. And then the private rescue shelters are about 20% sponsored. But then you volunteers and everybody else who have to find the money for the other 80%. Mm -hmm. Then on top of that, you have hundreds of hours every year taken taken up in veterinary procedures, be it used, you know, where they're forced to euthanize dogs, where they shouldn't have to. And the veterinary profession has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. And it's often canine related because they have to perform euthanizations that they do not want to. And I would say they shouldn't, they shouldn't be forced or shouldn't be put in a position to carry out these because in my world, um, I can see all of that is preventable, totally preventable. Mm. Uh, very interesting. Learning quite a bit. Won't go for like too much into uh, a heavier discussion. It's got yeah, I can see some some valid points and maybe some restrictive points. But if the system is is working and there's less issues for the dogs that are there. Going to swing the conversation back uh, a little bit to Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you notice much of a change in her? I mean, you talked a lot about the 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 uh, the challenge in the grooming, but mm-hmm. would I be right in saying once she was, you know, well, the first stage and and looking like a new dog, did that? have any change in, in behavior? It certainly it did, yes, yes. It was, um, I suppose there's two sides to that. It was, um, I'd say, a, a, for the starting point, you know, just, just grooming her, it was, um, I know this will sound a little bit crazy, but it could take up to an hour to maybe cut through two or three square inches of the matting. It was just one of the, it was a tough job. And, you know, it was sort of inch by inch by inch. And there were parts where I had to get the special groomer scissors. And it was was sort of as close to surgery for an amateur as you'll get. Uh, The the longer something sort of um, neglected like that, the harder it is to rectify hard as it was but one you know one of the things as as all of this came came off and then um after a couple of weeks of very hard work trying to get the, the mats off i could actually bring her inside the shelter um building and use one of the showers to actually give her her first scrub in god knows how many years if ever <laughs> <laughs> and how did she respond to the to the shower um, there was a bit like a wrestling match. It was sort of like, <laughs> this is not for me. What's this about? And it was it was sort of funny. Like she would give me these odd growls like. <sighs> and now I sort of knew, okay, Marlon, I know I know where you're going and I, I don't think I will be your dinner today. So <laughs> we had we had two or three efforts at that. And eventually she came around and then. Um, 
I suppose after her first wash, and you could see it, you could see it very quickly. The the dynamic changed almost overnight. You know, people would come up to her cage, and she'd say, "Oh, very lovely dog." Mm-hmm. And when I say people, I'm, I'm only talking about the um, the shelter management and and the frequent volunteers who work there, because her cage and the other eleven usual suspects um, were not in reach of the public. Yep. You know, for very good reason. For very good reason. Um, so. I would say, yeah, the the mood changed, and it's it's like, um, you know, she she went from you know a very matted, distressed animal, and then as as the chunks were cut away, one of the things it did give her was a bit more freedom of movement, you know, because when when the hair is so matted, it would be pulling pulling against her when she tried to walk or move the joint, so. Um, I suppose it gave her a lot more freedom, but um, and the relationship was a lot lighter, and I could see that she did look a lot happier. It did it did make a, a big difference, but we could never get over the the bigger problems. So I suppose to, to stick to your point that it it did give her a lot of happy, more happiness within those confines for her last few years. Yeah, definitely. Um, yep, yeah. I was going to say <laughs> apart from the, even the the movement restrictions and everyone well, feels happier when they are more comfortable in their own skin. And I'm not saying that has to be clean for dogs. It's like rolling in the mud. Mm-hmm. But I was also interested in your answer from the perception when people see a visual, oh, that dog looks a bit scruffy and rough mm-hmm. compared to a nicely groomed dog. Um, and there's no secret that the, the dogs can sniff out uh, our body chemistry changes and our emotions, that the connection changes from a person's perception from what they see, if that makes sense. Oh, big time. That's absolutely, yep. Yeah. That is so true. Um, I, You know, I... I, I that is that's a very powerful perception and... and um, I I think it's one where every rescue shelter and anybody who's ever involved in dogs is is falling down very badly. Now, what I mean by that, Robert, is when anybody visits a rescue shelter, they'll see dogs, if you like, on the cement in a natural an unnatural place. And okay, that's that's and the sort of unnatural behaviors and. It's, if you like, it's a screen against a visitor to a shelter making an instant contact or an instant um, bond. Now, you compare that with the way the mafia-controlled puppy mills operate. Mm -hmm. You go online, you will see the most perfect picture in the most perfect home of a newborn puppy who, unfortunately, we have six others and we really want to just get rid of this one. Um, now, what I'm saying there is basically the way dogs are adopted through the rescue shelters. You know, I think the first thing I would love to see all the shelter managers say is, "Put put your hands up, lads! You're no competition for the mafia." <laughs> End of story. <laughs> you're 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 just not. You know, like like when when I worked in the financial world. Many years ago, one one of the jobs I had was um, to deal with people who were in severe debt problems. And from time to time, um, I discovered they were up to here with money lenders. 
in other words, people who controlled um, money lending or if you look, loan sharking, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that, you know, so they'd be charged two or three hundred um, percent. And, you know, even back then, I was sort of, I, I was very curious. I think I was, I don't know, did you have Meccano when you were young, Robert? Actually, or did you have Lego? Yes, I can remember that. Yes. Yes. So I was, I was sort of the Meccano baby where I really wanted to know how all these screws work and how you build the system. And, you know, I didn't care once I understood how the system. So, you know, even the financial world, I, this will sound a little bit crazy, but I was sort of happy to engage with people who ran um, money lending scams and everything, just to sort of understand how their mind worked. <laughs> and, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I've often been told I'm a bit like the farmyard dog, you know, I just love to meet anybody and have a cup of tea with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's what you'll find, and it's one thing I found in, I, I know this will sound a bit crazy, but um, when you engage people who sort of lived, if you like, a life of criminality or they operate criminal schemes, the two things that I often found was they're quite engaging. And fair enough, that's their world, you know, and they're quite happy to have a cup of tea with anybody. And they're quite happy to explain how their world works. And one of the things I've often found, you know, when you examine how the criminal fraternity works is it's actually a very conservative enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) You say, my God, you know, that's, you can actually learn a lot from that. A lot of charisma and a a lot of uh, order and and processes that they adhere to. And, you know, and, and, you know, when, when I had meetings with the, the board managers and the, in, or the board directors in the, um, in the bank, I said, look, we're always going to be chasing these guys unless we get our act together. You know, we have to engage the customer and bring them to a higher standard of education and skills and budgeting skills and all the rest of it. Now, what I mean by that is, I would say 5% or less of the population know how to run a budget. Now, when I say what I mean by that is actually to think about finance and how it works and I found exactly the same story in the dog world. Again, the entire system is prey to the um, mafia dog mills, the puppy mills. And it's going to be like that for the next 200 years unless there's a severe mental change. Now, the great thing I would say is I think it's moving ever so slowly in that direction. I just need to accelerate it a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. But I, th- I think the basic, the biggest problem is not the laws, um, not the voluntary sector itself, not even the puppy mill operators. It's basically the two big changes that need to be made are how we get inside the head of the people on the last leg of the fence. The people are going to adopt the dog and then change the perception of where the dog is coming from. So one of the things I've been working on with, with my team is how do we attack that position? With Marilyn, did she have um, a, a preference on like uh, food or toys when you were doing work with her? Mm, food or toys. Um, and did she have any favorite sort of toys that you sort of used or that she had that would um, had sort of an impact to 
give her something to do or pacify her? Right. Um, I would say food. We'd start with food. Food is the easy one. Um, And I, I, I think this is something that affects all rescue shelter dogs, and I hate to say it, but um, food is quite expensive, and most rescue shelters are dependent on donations from the supermarkets or the pet stores. And in most of the cases, what you get is grain or dry food. And it's... it's something that it, most dogs, yeah, but, you can but, live yeah. on it. No, yeah, I'm you can a... live on it. Yeah, but you know, ideally, dogs are carnivores. They they should not be fed grain consistently. So, um, now again, that's a tricky one because the professional canine nutritionist will recommend something. You'll have veterinary voices recommending something else. So, without going or getting lost into that argument. <laughs> um, when, whenever I went to the rescue shelter, I always brought my own supply of ham and cheese and Marilyn basically knew, yep, yeah, it's bingo time again. Yep. And um, what Marilyn loved in those years was basically, and she, she was basically my help to, to, to get the, the dog training exams. So we got to the point where you know, when, when I was teaching her how to sit or down or anything like that, um, we got it, I would say, to a point of almost near telepathy. So when you're trying to train a dog to sit, it's fairly straight so stuff, you know, forward stuff. Um, you wait for calmness when the dog has your full attention and then there's hand signals. And with Merlin, I would go from getting the hand signals to a one or two, depending on which eye I wanted to, to, to blink. <laughs> And then remove the hand signal. So if I wanted Merlin to sit, that was it. For those people, that and she got it like that. Listening, if I wanted her it's flat, an eye blink. <laughs> yeah. So if I wanted her to go flat down and stay, it was two blinks. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then you know, and then there was um, there was there was one trick I used to do, which was um, we had had a magic magic trick, you know, which was which hand is the coin in, and I just give it. A, a, quick jab of the tongue going in one direction. <laughs> now, the people behind me, usually it's just the staff and the volunteers because this is a cage of... of um, they couldn't... They could never understand how that was done. But, <laughs> so I would say, unfortunately, with Merlin, you know, because she had to be always under near constraint because of the danger, there was never the freedom to get a ball and kick it down the field. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, now that's, that's what I would... I could do with other dogs at the shelter. Okay. But unfortunately, that was the history of Merlin. Um, so the food and the behavior and, yeah, and the telepathy. So I'd say, you know, other dogs, brilliant, but with Merlin and the other usual suspects. We had fun within the constraints. constraints yep. Yeah. Were there any particular games that you could sort of play that she enjoyed within those constraints? Oh, yeah, that was the magic trick with the coin. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's, if you like, there was sort of the the staff or the volunteers and the noise and the craziness of this. Um, And then one of the things was 
with Merlin. It was like, you know, when we got to the end of an exercise, there was, if you like, um, a bit of push and shove. And, you know, being um, a St. Bernard, she just loved, she loved that, if you like, the physical inter- interaction. But, um, yeah, I suppose that was, that would, that would sort of sum it up. You know, that's as, um, so I, I would say, you know, one of my regrets is, you know, why wasn't this the normal for every dog in that shelter? Or, and yeah. Um, when you did take her out for her sort of regular walks around, was it always the the same-ish sort of walk or was there, was there much variation in where you could take her? Uh Right. No, there were there were other variations. I I would um, I would take her to a near a nearby forest from time to time, mm-hmm. um, and I took what's called a long training leash, which would give us about about fourteen fifteen meters. Nice. Yep. But that 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 was as good as it was ever going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, so that that was that was on the harness as well, and. Even that was only in specific areas where I knew if anything happened, I'd be able to get control very, very quickly because you're talking about high risk here. <laughs> so I would say, you know, in that that she was able to get the smell of the forest and the natural environment, mm-hmm. and I did I did that with almost every every one of the usual suspects. So um, it would be a case of I'd come in and walk three or four. And then I'd be able to bring one of the usual suspects out to the forest where they, you know, and it's like bringing them back. It was the odd treat and it would be probably, it'd be, you know, given the constraints of time and everything else, they'd probably only get that treat maybe once every two months if they were lucky, Okay, you know, but that's, 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 that's the best of what was available. And, you know, in, in, other shelters, most of those dogs, if not all of them, would have been destroyed within two weeks, mm. and that's just that's just the craziness of of the system. Okay, did she have any uh, peculiar habits? Apart from trying to kill everything that moved, <laughs> no, <laughs> no other peculiar habits. Yeah, um, yeah glossed over that one. <laughs> yeah, but but. Um, I did. I did see her in action. You know, she was quite dangerous, and she would lunge. Mm-hmm. She would absolutely go for it. There was. It was like, um, was it Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde? You know, I could actually see that tension just coming in. But um, what would it be? You know, it would, I was going to say off the top of your head, one of one of the most proudest moments that you had of her. Oh, this moment. Um, ooh, I suppose. Let me think about that. Um, I think there's three of them. There's, uh, three strange, proudest moments. I suppose. Um, one was, I suppose, after all the grooming, she did look completely different, and um, I didn't actually notice the change because it was inch by inch by inch. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the a lot of the shelter volunteers and staff, you, you know, were saying that there is a big difference here. And um 
then I suppose the second moment I was very proud of was um, when the veterinary nurse was actually able to clip her nails without being attacked. Now, what basically happened at that moment is I got her to lie down on her back and I was feeding her the ham through a sort of a closed fist. So she had to try and she was totally distracted by trying to get the food and she didn't even notice what was happening. Now, uh, now, up to that moment, if there was even another person near us, she would, she, you know, she, it would have been way too dangerous. Uh, the third proudest moment, um, and this will sound crazy, is when um, I brought her out one day and she was quite lame. She wasn't then, she was very slow. So I, Sort of knew there was something wrong, and um, I told the manager that I think this the back that back leg needs to be looked at. Um, and then, but was it three, four, five days later, they called me to say um, it wasn't lameness; it was actually cancer. Mm-hmm. So when they brought her to the um, to the vet, um, they decided to take to sedate her and take an X-ray. And then when they saw what was there. They made the decision there and then to not to the the basic point was there were way too many tumors they discovered, cancerous tumors. And she would have just continued in pain for a long time. And the best they were going to get was a few months. So they made the decision there just to um call it a day while she was sedated. And I thought, you know, this was actually great. <laughs> I know it's, it sounds crazy, but um, I was sort of very proud that her spirit was no longer confined. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, that they were the, the three moments. It's very, very bittersweet time. Mm. But, uh, you know, looking back on it, um, I I think that was the experience when I sort of knew I sort of had to go on a different path. And the, the dog internet project and the book is sort of the result of all of that so yeah uh, so there are some some silver linings sometimes when yeah on the darkest yeah. clouds mm-hmm. so I would say that's um, that's the funny thing about or not the funny thing but the strangest thing of all relationships is as you live through a relationship if you like, the spiritual reason for that relationship um, is never what you think it is. Mm. And it never becomes clear <laughs> during that time. You know, there's um, there's a wonderful movie called The Devil's Advocate. And the, the last line in it is where the devil is saying to one of the, the heroes in the movie, you know, if you think nature and spirituality and God are logical, you know, you must be fooling yourself that, that 
you know, God is a bit of a prankster that all human relationships are never what you think they are. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, when I look back at Marilyn and the moments that we went through and my time at the rescue shelter and what I'm trying to do now is, you know, somebody was playing a trick there somewhere. And I don't mean magic and where's the coin? It's like, you know, what was the reasoning and where does it go and how is it? And um, I, I would say I have a strange feeling that um, when my day comes and I'm, I'm leaving planet Earth, <laughs> I have a strange feeling I'll, I'll be met by Marilyn and the other usual suspects. And um, for some reason, I have a feeling that a lot of them will say, well, what kept you? You know, it's better here. <laughs> and I say, well, lads, you know, <laughs> I was trying to do something to sort out um, the world as you left. I often say it's just, it's incredible how a, a, a single representative of of two different species connect and can literally change the world. Yeah, it is. It is strange, but maybe maybe that's your role in life, Robert. <laughs> is to I don't know what, a, what what a weird place we live in. <laughs> <laughs> and just there, uh, the the power of a of a, a human canine connection, mm-hmm. which a lot of people would argue isn't logical. Why would it, you know, intelligent species as if a human be governed by a chance meeting with a canine, with a dog? But stranger things in life happen and, and sometimes things are just meant to be. Mm, things are meant to be. Um, I would say a lot of things in the human world are not meant to be. And perhaps if we listen to the message from, if we listen to the the message of nature as communicated through the animals, then maybe we have an obligation to, um, not to try and change anything or everything, but quite simply to listen to the message and then question, just question, are things meant to be or not meant to be? I think then the, the world would be a lot better place. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, simple as that. <laughs> so if I can engage your, if, as I say, can I start selling my book? <laughs> <laughs> yes, feel free to. I would, I, <laughs> right, I, I would do this unashamedly and I want to give you a very, a very simple um explanation of how this works so in if i understand this rightly and tell me if if i have my figures right so in australia i think you have about 5.1 million domestic dogs in the country oh i'd say yeah that's pretty close right so thereabouts so the way the, the system and the herd and the nature works is you'll have some dogs dying naturally at about six years that's their lifespan others like terriers, about 16 years. So what the veterinary 
community will say, well, there's a happy medium here of about 10 years. So every year, roughly 10% of a national dog herd will reach its end date, will, will pass away. And there's a, the re-adoption rate actually runs parallel to that. So every year in Australia, you're going to get about 500,000 dogs being adopted into homes. And the way dogs end up in homes, they end up in the sort of two categories. So about 20% of the dogs that end up in homes will be typically an elderly person, 60 years plus, and they're living on their own because their family have moved out. And unfortunately, their husband, their wife, their partner have passed away recently. And they suddenly need a bit of companionship. They need a little bit of noise in the house. But their second biggest need is a reason to get up in the morning and engage with everybody downtown or in the village. So quite simply, a dog comes into their life and they have to get out and walk the dog down to the town or whatever. And suddenly it's a lease of life. They're back with everybody Mm -hmm. and it's life as normal. Now, in the other 80% of cases, and this, in my opinion, is where we have a major problem. And it's basically called the conversation. So every so we look at that figure of the 80%, which means there is a child somewhere in Australia trying to convince their parents to bring a dog into the house. Because everybody else in their school or the class has a dog, but they don't. And they feel their civic rights are being abused and they're discriminated against. And when they have a conversation in the classroom, their classmates can't understand why they don't have a dog in the house. So they go to their parents and says, oh, well, uh, we must have a dog in the house. What's wrong with us? Now, the parents have suddenly a problem that if we say no, it's the biggest rejection in that child's life. Because it's not saying no to the child, it's saying no to the child within the context of the pressure of the peer group. Now, if they say yes, it's open season because they're already committed. (laughs) And what I found, so if we look at Australia, for example, that conversation will happen every 90 seconds. Every 90 seconds or possibly more because a lot of children well, a lot of that, that that's just in terms of dogs that end up in houses. So every 90 seconds, an Australian child will say to one of their parents, why do we not have a dog and how soon are we getting a dog? And as a result of that, what you'll get is a situation where in most cases, that need is satisfied by an impulse purchase without planning. And what you get then is the puppy mills or a dog breeder who's off the radar will make money because there's no research done. Now, the worst examples are across Europe and the States. And for example, in the States, the puppy mills make a profit of roughly $130 per second. Mm. Wow. And, and they basically have a turnover going to be, between two and three billion per year. And that market exists because of the conversation and because of the pressure the parent is under. Now, compare that with Switzerland 
that conversation never happens. Never happens, yeah. No. So now, what my my team and I've when I say my team, I have a, a sort of a core group of about six. A lot of them I've worked with over the many years, and I put this proposition out on the internet since about uh, fourteen, fifteen months ago, and. What happened very quickly was we had 50 experts, from mostly from the States, and Spencer Hoggett from the UK, and Spencer's been a great um, driver of this project. So we basically said, how do we target this conversation? Now, this conversation happens somewhere globally every 0.4 of a second. The child, so in other words, almost two and a half times a second. Um, a child will ask a parent for a dog. And that's why the whole situation arises globally. So after a year of hit and miss and reviews and rehearsals and everything else, we've produced a book called When Your Child Asks for a Dog. Mm-hmm. And then, so the, the way the book works is it's split into three parts. It's a love story between a half-blind, disabled dog that two children discover in a rescue shelter. And the, we tried to, what we're really what we're trying to do with this book is get the four or five forces within that cage to work all differently and change the culture. So instead of the family taking the dog home, the dog says, oh no, these are my terms and conditions if I want to move in with you. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so... The children are sort of, oh, sorry, we didn't realize that was the story. So as the children go through the chapters, then that's all on the left-hand side of the page. On the right side of the page, there's a narrative for the parents to read. And the narrative explains the science and reasoning behind what's in the love story. And. All right, so then the last third of the page is where the children have to agree to certain learning tasks. And then the horrible part of it is they've actually to sign their name to the bottom of it. The commitment stage. <laughs> A commitment, yes. <laughs> and what we've discovered in that, what we discovered as we hoped in our focus groups was that. 30% of the children get to chapters four and five and they say, well, no, I, we didn't realize we had to give up our pocket money to pay for the dog's toys. <laughs> or do we really have to clean up if the dog poos in the house? And do we have to skip the sports day to bring the dog out? And, oh, I didn't know we had to have the parents with us if we're walking the dog. <laughs> so it goes through this. So it, what we do then is we, it's the only book in the 200 years history of, if you like, the structure we have where an effort has been made to step into that space from the moment the child asks and before the parent has to answer. Yep. So it's, to- it's totally unique in that fashion. And as the child goes through the book, it's a love story but it's also a, if you like, as close to a university project on how you build contracts, but only on the building blocks of respect. Mm-hmm. So by the time the, children, the child is two-thirds through the book, 
they've suddenly learned how to build a contract. What's involved in the contract? You know, the two parties are going on the same track together. The cooperation of living together in a particular space or in a particular project. So the child learns to build a contract with an animal, with its siblings, with its classmates. And we have a chapter in there on how the child orchestrates the visit of a classmate into a house with the dog. And even if the classmate is to bring a dog into the house, what has to be done beforehand? Um, the contract with the parents. Then we widen it up to build the contract with the institutions. In other words, the local dog shelter. What's the name of the manager? And so we go through this inch by inch and, in, and step by step. The last third of the book is, is it's quite technical. And this is just for the grown-ups. And it's where we go through everything like, okay, you own a dog. You must go to a dog training school to have the dog socialized so your skills will improve. But how do you how do you choose that dog trainer? Um, we have seven or eight steps, tick boxes. Um, the questions to ask the dog trainer about their qualifications. Here's a list. Um, insurance, you name it. Things that most people wouldn't actually even think about. Um, and then you know we even go to the last hour of the dog and how your children prepare for that. You know, in other words, the rainbow bridge. Mm-hmm. So, so we go from, we bring everybody on the journey to before you even talk to the dog, to how your neighbors and your friends talk about that horrible moment and how you're prepared for it. Um, and then, you know, even in society, we have a chapter written by, you've probably come across this wonderful lady, Debbie Hamilton, who's a lawyer in the States. Um, brilliant animal rights activist. And Debbie has been our backbone on this book from day one. And she's written a couple of, she's written the foreword for the book and she's also written two chapters in it. One is um, called What If. So what if your legal status changes? So you could be divorced, disabled, even delayed in a flight home. And all of this would put your dog's legal position into question. So she's given a lovely little chapter on it. And then we have a form that you can fill in quite easily where you can appoint somebody to come in as the caregiver. And as I say, they have your authorization to act. So that keeps everybody else at ease. There's no need for the police to ask the rescue, local rescue shelter to take the dogs into care. Mm because there's, there's a person appointed both short-term and long-term. Again, these are things that even rescue shelters at, up to this moment in time haven't even thought about. So what, what basically the book and the project has done over the last year is we're trying to bring, if you like, a Swiss way of managing everything through a love story. But without the Swiss rule of law, you know, the, the Swiss, they think, I'll, I'll put it this way, if you're trying to ride a bicycle in Switzerland, it, your obligations will be made very clear. So it's, it's a different world. But what we're trying to do is take the best of that world, bring it under soft law or persuasive cultural changes. And, you know, I, I think we're succeeding inch by inch because in 
the few months that we've tried to launch the book and get where what we're finding at the moment is everybody we ask are saying, yeah, yeah, we try that. So we've got, um, I think we, we have the book validated professionally. So the vets, the dog trainers, the rescue shelters, anybody who's read it or looked at it, they say, well, we want to be involved. Which is so we we have a few um, veterinary professionals with um, publishing companies backing us. Um, the Pet Parents Association of America have backed the book, and um, I would say to anybody in Australia who's interested, please get in touch, yeah. and we'll make it available. Anything that promotes uh, someone to to think and have a discussion on mm-hmm. how to enhance a, a human-canine relationship has got my support. People just need triggers to think more mm-hmm. about what they're doing and what actions and reactions sort of can happen. So it's, uh, I think a lot of people, to go back to the even the, the can I have a, a puppy question, it's almost autopilot. They don't yeah. give the respect to the the dog, to the answer, and it's a yeah, nah, and that's it. Whereas something like if they were to open your book and start to think what's actually involved, a, a more informative decision mm-hmm. can be made and that would down the line, perhaps stop a lot of the issues that, that are around at the moment. Yeah. So where do people get your book and where can people find out more? Well, our website is very simple. It's called thedoginternet.com. Thedoginternet.com. Internet.com. And as I say, we're, we're trying to change the world's culture to the internet and it's 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 quite good that it's here at the moment <laughs> but i i what what i would love what i would really dearly love is anybody in a dog training profession or in any of the dog care institutions in australia um to get in touch my my dream is that this book will not be sold through um the Amazon outlet in the future. It is on Amazon at the moment, but the dream is really that the book is only sold through dog caring professionals or dog caring charities and keep all of the money within the people who need it most. I like that. So, you know, that's that's so quite simply. Um, we have we have a very simple taster chapter. And I'm quite happy to give that to every rescue shelter in Australia or anybody who's, who's involved. And it will save them. I'm giving this away absolutely free. It's quite simply the chapter we were talking about, what if. And it's very simply, it, any rescue shelter can give, give this immediately to everybody who ever got a dog from them. And what it will do is it will mitigate or remove the danger of the dog being returned because the owner came across a difficult patch in their life. So it's a very simple chapter on, these are the things to watch out for. This is how you would formulate 
a written permission or authority for somebody who might step into your shoes. And what, you know, hopefully the ideal situation would be that you'd have two or three dog owners in a town agreeing that, look, if, I, if you get into trouble, I look after your dog and vice versa. And you fill out the form, short-term, long-term, here's the person. And that form is basically, if you like, it's, it's put on your fridge, it's left inside the door. So if the police have to enter your property or you give it to your GP, your, your general practitioner, or even your vet, your local police officer, the rescue shelter manager. So give it to everybody, including the neighbor. So if the neighbors see the policeman pulling up and ringing your bell, well, that's who you want to come out and say, well, actually, don't worry about the dogs because you can activate this instruction. And it, now this, I think it's very important. It's a legal innovation. It hasn't been around more than a year, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Debbie Hamilton's work. But um, Debbie would love to see this in everybody's hands around the world. And I would say, if anybody wants that, it's freely available from us. Excellent. And if the book is of interest, give me a buzz and I will get a a personal copy to anybody who wants it. And let's take it from there. So it's inch by inch. And I would love to see this in Australia. Let's hope we get it out there. And I would say, I'll put it this way, um, to go back to Maryland, everything is possible one tiny inch at a time. And um, you'll find my team and everybody who's backed this book just cutting away surgically, inch by inch, Mm -hmm. to remove the evil of the puppy mills. It's going to take time, but I am convinced in Merlin's memory, we will all get there. Certainly will. Karen. it has been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you, hearing about Marilyn and hearing about the, the whole concept of the book and what you and your team are trying to achieve. So thank you. Well, thanks for the, the uh, tour down memory lane, Robert. And, and you're doing an amazing job changing the world. <laughs> And thank you very much for having me as your guest. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Thank you to our new listeners in Liverpool, in Australia, and also in Middleton in the US. Uh, Best thing you can do for the show and for your friends is to tell them about it and have more people listen to how awesome dogs are. If you do want to like, share, subscribe, uh, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on, it would also be appreciated. Thank you very much again. Until next week, stay safe, and remember, your dog is family. 